you all are more privileged than the 9 a.m. service. I don't know if you guys know that, um, but let me give you a little secret. A pastor's second sermon is always better than their first. So you guys should stay coming to the second service and invite your friends uh, who attend the 9 to attend um, the second one. It's typically better. So Luke said today um, in the Fighting Fear service, Fighting Fear series, we are going to address the fear that many of you all would not have it come to your mind if we were talking about the top level fears, though some of you may. Here's the fear, the fear of getting close. The fear of getting close. So we could also say the fear of being known. We are going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, but before we do, pray with me because this topic is very pastoral is the way we would say it which just means it can be very personal it hits a lot of us and so we want to take the concern to really walk you through this both biblically but at a way for you to recognize it if you don't or those of you who do recognize it that feel like you come up against a wall when you try to address it we want to help you walk through it in a way that will be personally beneficial to yourself so let's pray father this um is such a reality in all of our lives, this fear of getting close for many different reasons. Uh, there's a bulk of people sitting in this room who have sought to get close or been in close relationships um, and been burned by it. So God, I pray that you would speak to them. There are those of us who just don't wanna get close because we get in the way. And we don't even know what that means and it feels far too vulnerable. Um, God, speak to us as well. But God, overall, help us understand what nearness means, what closeness means. God, what being known and what knowing has for us all and the power that's displayed for us in it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. How many of you of all have heard of the world-renowned violinist named Joshua Bell? So about the same number at nine o'clock knew who he was. This is who he is. He's world-renowned violinist um, that plays literally all over the world because he's world-renowned. He's that good. Well, a few years ago, he was in Washington, D.C., dressed in very normal clothes, took out his violin and began to play in the subway. Now, as he played in the subway, what you see in a video that you can access on YouTube that's not as much displayed in this picture is that very few people stopped to listen to how amazing this violinist really was. It shows hundreds, if not thousands of people getting off the subway and moving on and never hearing the beauty of this music. Now you've got to wonder, what was in those people's head as they rushed off the subway that allowed them to walk right past a world-renowned violinist and never even take notice? Well, obviously, many of them were going, I have a place to go. I'm late, right? But others of them may be thinking very specific questions that we ask ourselves all the time on our drives, at work, even when we're at home. Many of us that may say we're not good multitaskers are good multitaskers fundamentally because we're listening to things in our head all the time while we're doing other things. So likely there's people walking off that train, maybe even with a happy smile, saying things like, I'm so happy my dad loves me while other people are walking off going, why did my dad never love me? 
while others are going, why did I never know my dad? Others are walking off thinking and maybe even having headphones on, listening to their favorite band or thinking about their favorite music as they walk right past amazing music in and of itself. Other people are fearing at that very moment the loss of job or the loss of a family member. The reality is we all experience our life through our skin. We experience real life and it dominates. Real life is what dominates our human experience. It dominates our emotions, it dominates our thoughts, and it really affects us. But many of us are so dominated by many of those things that we never stop and listen to the music. If you go to YouTube to watch Joshua Bell at the DC Metro subway, it'll say stop and listen to the music. One of my favorite books I've ever read is written by an older woman named Rosemarie Miller. The book's titled From Fear to Freedom. And in this book, she has this line where she says, many of us, if not most of us as Christians, know the lyrics of the gospel, but have never heard its tune. Now I wanna say that again and let that sink in for a minute because what she's saying is that many of us know the lyrics of the gospel. We could recite the way we learned the gospel, the four spiritual laws. We could recite the gospel of Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. The good news that God has come to reconcile and restore the creation that was lost because of the fall. Whatever way we articulate it, we know some, if not all, of the lyrics of the gospel. But yet, far too few of us have ever heard its tune. We need to stop and listen to the music. Actually taste and see that God is good and the news he came to bring is good. The reality is, folks, and this is serious, I have Muslim friends who are dear friends of mine that we have stood face to face with each other with them rising to their feet to say to me the lyrics of the gospel. To look at me and go, I can't clean my shirt and then say your shirt is clean. To recite to me everything I'd want to pronounce to them. The difference between them and I is for some reason, God enabled me the ears to hear the tune, the music of the gospel. Not just understand and recite its lyrics. But the truth is, even for me, much of my life, too much of my life is lived in fear and even the fear of getting close. And the only way I experience the freedom to overcome the fear of getting close is to stop and listen to the music of the gospel. We're gonna try to do that today through 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. There's three verses. The first one is this. What's our hindrance to being known? What's the hindrance to getting close? will be verse 16. Secondly, what's the ignition that moves us toward God, toward ourselves, and toward other people? That's the ignition. So we're going to talk in car language. What's the problem with the car, the hindrance? What's the ignition to get us going in the right direction? And then what's the engine, verse 18, that sustains us and moves us and takes us to the place that we want to go? So let's get after it. Verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. 
very clearly from that verse starting off is this sense that when we turn to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now we're going to, in a minute, define what exactly does he mean by the Lord and what does he mean by the veil. But think about it this way. If you've ever been married or you've ever had kids, let's start with kids. I have four of them, 10 and under. And one thing that's true when you become a parent is the Bible proves itself true through your experience. So the Bible has this verse about kids that says, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Right? And you watch and you're like, my Lord, the Bible's true. Like, sign me up. I believe that, right? And I love my kids. And my kids are amazing. And God designed them in the exact way they should. But I am telling you, kids oftentimes are just foolish. They're foolish in their fears. They're foolish in thinking that the way they're going to get what they want is by doing something you told them not to do. And you're like, that just seems stupid, right? Like, why would you think you're going to get what you want by doing something I told you not to do? So there's these moments they'll throw fits on the floor because they're not getting right now, not ever, but right now they're not getting what they want. But if you want it later, you shouldn't probably act like that. But the older they get, and I don't mean older by 18, just the older they get, there's these moments, even when they get to about two to three years old, where they begin to understand, I'm going to show you by isolating myself. Or at other points, it may not just be, I'm going to show you that I'm mad at you by isolating myself, but they isolate themselves because at some point, a barrier's been created by sin that now sits in between them and the rest of the family, them, each one of those individual children, and me, this veil sits there and they now start asking all these questions like, do they like me? Am I still okay? This language that sits in so many humans' heads and hearts of, am I enough? And it continues to just propagate itself and it's like a snowball effect. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm not good. And then they're the problem. And in the end, sin does what sin do, does it disintegrates. You know in the Bible, when you read the Bible from front to, front to back, there's one thing that you cannot get away from and it's this word union. That God created all of the world to be in union with itself, in union with each other. So fundamentally, all of creation, and you are a part of that, you and I were made to be in union with God. So take your hands for a minute and, and hold them together tightly. You know there's that phrase of, it goes together like hand in glove. Well, the way in, in which if you have both of your hands and, and they are working the way God intended and designed them, human hands to work, you can put them together and hold them even tighter than hand and glove. God meant his whole entire creation, everything he made, to be integrated, right? So squeeze it tight. We were meant to be integrated with God. We were made to be integrated in harmony with ourselves, integrated with each other, the rest of humanity, which is as simple as you and your spouse or you and your parents or you and your children or you and your neighbors or you and your boss. So integrated us with God, we're supposed to be in union. Us with ourselves in union. Us with each other in union. Us with the wider world in union. Here's what sin does. So do it with me. Hold tight. Sin disintegrates, right? Don't think disintegrates at a level of entirely destroys, but disintegrates the way the word means. 
Things that were meant to be integrated, now are not. We are not integrated with God anymore because of sin. We're not integrated with ourselves. We have a hard time. If we go, can you figure out who you are, right? We do big personality tests to try to figure out who we are, right? Does that seem a little crazy? Not crazy and bad, it's good. But you gotta go, man, how did we get so confused with who we are that we now have to do all these tests to figure out who we are, right? Then, we're disintegrated with each other. If right now I said, can I get an amen to this? Our relationship's hard, right? If you were honest, this whole room would sound Pentecostal. Amen, right? <laughs> yes, relationships are hard. It's just living in the world and going to work hard. Amen, right? It's a service. What God meant to be joined together was separated fundamentally because of sin. Now God says that sin, that separation, is what here speaks of the veil. There are always these things in our life that veil us from God first and foremost, from ourselves, from each other, and from the world. And this word veil spoken of throughout the Bible in many ways. Here it's spoken of specifically from Exodus 33 and 34. 32, 33, and 34. You read this story of Moses. And in the end, Moses had encountered the glory of God, but when he faced the people, they were terrified by the radiance of the glory of God being upon his face. They feared, and in turn, that that glory was passing away, he then veiled himself. So now, fundamentally in this passage, what Paul is saying is that if one of the Israelites turned to the Lord, the veil is removed. The implication of that is when anyone turns to the Lord, which is the language of repentance, the veil is removed. These barriers of hostility, these veils that separate us from our true integration with God, our true integration with ourselves, our true integration with each other are dismantled, are torn down when we turn to the Lord. Now in the Old Testament, the Lord was God. Yahweh was Lord. The nation of Israel was meant to live amongst all other nations and say there is no king but Yahweh. Yahweh is the real Lord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There is no other. Yahweh is Lord. In the New Testament, who is spoken of as Lord? Jesus. So if you ever wonder, does the Bible claim that Jesus is God? Just use the term. Does, does the Bible say in the New Testament, Jesus is Lord? Yes. How's the word Lord used in the Old Testament? Of God. That's it, right? So in the end, the way in which it's used of Jesus in the New Testament. So in the end, what he's saying here is anytime one turns to Jesus, the veil is removed. Sin is being dealt with. The veil represents the consequences of the disintegrating effects of sin. Now here you've got to understand this because so many of us sit in this room and would understand sin only as the bad things we do, which is true. Those bad things that aren't in line with what God said are sin. But understand sin is a reality. And sin affects, yes, spiritual things, we call spiritual, our life with God, which affects everything else. Our view of ourselves, our view of each other, the wider world. So when we look at the world, we're like, it's crazy. People are beating the snot out of each other because of a presidential election. Not even a presidential election yet. Like, the, who's gonna be the candidate for each party? Like, you just sit there and go, 
wow, so it's not hard to argue that sin's in the world and the way the Bible speaks to sin is the ways and I would say, I did not grow up in the church and I tell people this all the time, outside of a conversation that I am following Jesus far more because Jesus and God pursued me than me pursued him. But on a real rational level, I'd say I'm a Christian because I think it makes the best sense of the way the world really is. That's the way the Bible talks about sin, is these disintegrating effects. And this passage is saying, when you turn to the Lord, the veil, the disintegrating effects that keep us from God, us from ourselves, and us from each other are done away with in its entirety. So I want you to see this in the turning to the Lord. We're sitting in the room right now and if you've identified your fear of getting close, your fear of moving towards God, maybe the fear of moving towards yourself, and the fear of moving towards people, that fear is bound up in sin. Okay? Now hear me really, really clearly right now. I'm not trying to guilt you or shame you, I'm stating a fact. The fear that separates us from each other, the fear that separates us from ourselves, and the fear that separates us from God is the result of sin. Okay, now, hear me a minute. The truth is, many of us, though we sit in a very crowded room and are crowded by social media and may work with many people, crowds don't mean you're known. Crowds don't mean you're close. Crowds certainly don't mean you're in union with other people. And truth be told, you've got to start with being honest with yourself. Many of us are scared to death to be exposed even before God because we're living in this am I enough syndrome? Am I enough for that? Is he pleased with me? Does he like me? Many of us are unwilling to even do that with ourselves. I don't want to open that door of my past. I don't want to acknowledge that. I don't want to look at how I really feel in my anxious self right now, in my depressed self right now, because I don't, in the end, want to come to grips with who I may truly, really be. And that always affects, in huge form, the way in which we want to interact with others in our own nuclear family, in our own communities, in our own churches, in our world, is that in the end, no way am I gonna do that. And some of you may go rightfully so, because I've been burned. And I would say, yes, that's the reality of how relationships function in a world of sin, is there is burning. But I would tell you, it is to your catastrophic loss that you allow fear and the veil to stand between you and your integration and union with God, yourself, and others. It is to your catastrophic loss. So don't hear me say, it's not best for you. I'm saying it has catastrophic consequences. And the ignition, right? The ignition to that, we're gonna speak of in a minute, but the hindrance is that, that it's there. So the ignition of it is a turning to Jesus, which I wanna make very simple to you. This turning, this idea of repentance, isn't going, I've gotta leave that and that and that and that and that and that and that. That's not what repentance is. Repentance is a turning towards somebody and as a result of turning to the Lord, but when one turns to the Lord, they leave sin because sin and Jesus are in opposite directions. So when I'm chasing after sin, I'm running away from Jesus. The beautiful part of the gospel is that 
He runs after us as well, but that's not what this message is. We are running away from Jesus. So in these moments when you're going, what do I do? He's saying, the first step is to understand there's a hindrance there, and here's what leads to the ignition. The next verse, turn towards the Lord. So who is this Lord in more detail here? The next verse says this. Verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We don't have a huge moment here, but I want you to understand the role of the Holy Spirit. If you were going to do a topical study of the Holy Spirit in the Bible, the topical study would say the role of the Holy Spirit is to point you to Jesus. The point of the Holy Spirit is to unite you to Jesus. The Holy Spirit never does anything to make you go, Whoa, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit always does things to make you go, oh, Jesus. Always, 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 always. Massive role that we ignore way too often, but his point is to point us to the Lord. Now here, the Lord is the Spirit, which is very clear. The Lord is God and the Spirit is God, but we're not doing a systematic theology, topical study on the Spirit. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There's freedom. When you think about this word, freedom, what does it conjure up in you? What do you feel? When you hear this word freedom, what do you think? What do you feel? What do you think? What does it remind you of? Well, just this week, here's one thing it reminded me of. I was coaching, I am coaching a team with a really good friend of mine named Brian, the Grays, 10U baseball. We sat at the end of our practice, all the coaches sit down kind of on one knee while all the, we sit like this, while all the 10U kids sit on their bottoms and we'll say, baseball knee, eyes on me. So they'll sit on their knee at first, but then they move to their bottoms. But the big deal is baseball eyes, get your Baseball knee, eyes on me. Get your eyes up here. We'll all make sure their eyes are there. Coach Brian says this. Let me ask you guys a question. If you were in a tryout, how would you feel? If you knew you weren't on the grays yet and you didn't know if you were going to play, how does the tryout feel? And they all kind of, scary. It does feel scary, right? It feels really scary. But when your coach comes up to you and says, you're on the grays and you're going to play, How does that feel? And they go, good, right? That feels good. Now, you know this is true. Your pastor, Luke Simmons, has told me a story. He played baseball at the University of Illinois, if he's never told you that uh, before. And by the way, he was really good. But he tells this story of being early on in his career and fighting for his position and fighting for his position. And the difference in which he played, the year in which his coach said, the positions is yours, the position's yours, you're not going to lose it. And the language he used was not just it felt good, but that it provided freedom. Think about a marriage. I'm yours, no matter what. I'm not going anywhere, and if you go, I'm going with you, right? What does that create of the freedom to just be yourself? Or the freedom to do good work when your boss says, you're here. There is a round of layoffs coming, but you're settled, the freedom to work heartily in those moments. The freedom when a friend says to you, I know you're gonna screw up, but I am here. Come whatever or high water, I'm here. The power of that is freedom. 
Freedom comes from knowing you have connected relationships that aren't leaving even if you screw up. That's freedom. And he says where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now I want you to understand the opposite of freedom, the opposite of freedom is what? Enslavement. Now I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but you've got to understand how important this is. Is the effects of sin, if that's right, that the effects of sin create alienation between us or disintegration between us and God, us and ourselves, and us and our neighbors, others in the midst of that. Here it's saying fundamentally that's enslavement. You are enslaved at the moment that you don't have relationships based upon your reality or based upon their reality. The fact that you don't have relationships where you can be vulnerable is an enslaving, enslaving reality. But where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You remember the line that Jesus said that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth, now who's the truth? Well, Jesus says, I am the truth. He says, Jesus says he's the truth. And then he says, where truth is, there's freedom. The truth will set you free. Then Paul says, speaking of Jesus' work, it is for Christ's sake, it is for freedom that he has set you free. Galatians 5.1. He is all about in his movement towards us, your freedom that starts fundamentally with you understanding something, with you hearing something, Listen to me in this, with you stopping and listening to the music. Well, what's the music? Look at Zephaniah chapter three. How does freedom come? By you stopping and listening to the music. He's passionate about your freedom. The Lord your God is in your midst. Now, this is Zephaniah writing to Israel. The whole logic of the Old Testament is if it were true with them, how much more true in Jesus? That's the logic all the time. The fulfillment of the new covenant. How much more true in Jesus. The Lord your God is in your midst. The Lord. The King of kings. The Lord of lords. The creator and sustainer of the universe. Who has made himself known to us. What God is like is Jesus. Jesus. The Lord is in our midst. Stop right now for a minute and just look around. I'm going to have you do this a couple times. Look around. He's saying he's here. He's in our midst. A mighty one. He's the Lord, a mighty one who will save. You know the logic of the Bible all the time is that saving nature, the saving nature of God comes out of his lordship. Jesus is both Lord and Savior. Lordship doesn't flow from Savior. Savior flows from lordship, from his very character. So if he's in our midst, he's here. A mighty one who will save. Not who could, not who might, but who will save. So when you sit in this room and you may sit here as an unbeliever and you keep hitting these barriers and you go, I don't know what they are, but I know when you talk about disintegration and alienation, I feel it. Jesus says, come to me, come be integrated. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will reintegrate you. I will save you. That's the word salvation. But then there are those of you who are in this room who's like, I've walked the aisle a bunch of times. I made my profession of faith. I've been baptized. But I still feel this. God, as much as this, God is as much a savior today 
as he ever was then. And when you go, but I fear like crazy this reality of getting close, being made known, being vulnerable, he will save you. Now listen to this. How does it happen? By stopping and listening to the music. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Now, I want you to hear something that I am gonna say takes the scripture even deeper into our reality. Right now, scientific studies, the kind of center point of scientific study right now is the brain. And over and over again, scientists are studying the brain in multiple forms and features. One, that's giving huge, huge hope that people really can change. Two, it gets at how they ultimately change and saying why community is so important. And the word that they'll use is attachment. That when you sit with a baby, they'll study a baby's brain, and when the baby feels itself, or the child feels itself being doted over, rejoiced in, the word's joy, that there are people around them that take joy in them on an ongoing basis, not just a drive-by basis, but on an ongoing basis, their brain forms in a healthy manner. Those who haven't had it, their brains are not aligned, not integrated the way that they should be. But in the end, they then study those people. And this could even be true of a kid who grew up in a great environment, a girl who grew up in a great environment that's now in a horribly abusive situation of when they come out, they need to unlearn this reality of being called scum over and over again. Of being called miserable, of the center of all the problems they have to, but the promise and the hope that's coming out of neuroscience is that these things can be reintegrated. How? (coughs) By being doted over. Not doted over of like there's nothing wrong with you, but loved, being rejoiced over with gladness, being quieted with love, exulting over you with singing. And yet truth is, folks, this is true the way life is meant to operate, the way God ordered it to operate, but many of us don't even feel that type of vulnerability to be able to come to God. We don't view God as a God who rejoices over us with singing. We don't view God as a one who in the midst of our chaos and noise can come be quieted with his love. We don't view God as one who's rejoicing others with loud singing, not just quiet singing, loud, like screaming how much I love them. One neuroscientist that's also a Christian has recently written a book called The God-Shaped Brain to try to say all of the brain science shows that it's shaped like God and that we desperately need to understand how much God loves us, that he rejoices over us with gladness, that he quiets us by his love, that he exults over us with singing in Christ. He offers the world, even those of you who aren't here or or aren't believers right now, this moment that Christ comes to you to say, come to me, come to me that I might rejoice over you, that I might quiet you with your love. That's the ignition, the starting point of you and I ever being known, ever getting close is God's love. Then the question is, as God's love comes over us, what are we becoming and how does that happen? What's the engine that keeps it going, that keeps this reality of Jude talks about, keep yourselves in the love of God. How does that happen? Verse 18, and we all with unveiled face, which means, who are those with unveiled face? 
Look at the very first verse. Who are those with unveiled face? Just say it to me real quick. Okay, Christian. Those who've turned to the Lord, right? Those who've turned to the Lord are those where the veil has been taken away. So now if he's speaking to those who've turned to the Lord, and we all with unveiled face, who's he talking to? The church. So look around again. I asked you to do this before and you didn't do a very good job. Look around. Look at each other. Okay, the church, if this has not been told to you before, which I know it has, is not a building. The church is people. And the church is huge beyond one local church. But we only know a church and we only experience a church in local form. He says, and we all with unveiled face. So he wants us to look around at that moment beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So what is he saying? We are being transformed into the same image. The image of what? Jesus. Romans chapter eight, verse 29 says, before the foundations of the world, if you are one who's turned to the Lord, you were predestined to be conformed into the image of God's son into the image of Jesus, who, by the way, is the fullest and most perfect human being, the way we were really meant to operate, Jesus provides example of. So he's saying, you all, you all right now with the unveiled faces are beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the image of Jesus. Now, I want you just to do basic Bible study with me. Based upon that verse, how are we being transformed into the image of Christ? Just go just before it. We get transformed into the image through what? Through beholding, okay? The beholding, what? The glory of God transforms us and makes us more like Christ, corporately as a church and individually. So we've got to see the glory of God. The glory of God, beholding, setting your attention upon something. Guys, this is all the time right now. You can read a lot about this. You have to pay attention to what you're paying attention to. Tweet that, write it down. You have to pay attention to what you're paying attention to because what you're paying attention to forms you. God's saying, pay attention. Behold the glory of God. Now the question is this. If the engine to our transformation is beholding, paying attention to the glory of God. How do we pay attention to the glory of God? Because be real with me, that sounds very like esoteric and weird, like, I don't know what that means. Right? I guess I might light incense and go in the corner and the Bible seems like a good move. That's very true. The Bible does reveal to us God, but that's not what this passage says. This passage says you will be transformed. The engine that will keep you in the love of God that will transform you is by beholding the glory of the Lord which comes through we all, the very beginning of verse 18. It says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord and being transformed from the same degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now, one translation says this, and we all with unveiled face, says beholding the glory of God, another one says contemplating the glory of God. The word contemplate and behold literally is this idea of reveal, revealing. So it led one translator to write this verse this way, which I think is very biblically accurate. And all of us 
without any veil on our faces, gazing at the glory of the Lord as in a mirror. That's reveal. Behold, how are we beholding it? So think about this, revealing. And we all, the glory of God is being revealed to us by a massive mirror here in the front of the room, massive. And you start looking at it and at first it just looks like a big sea of people. And then you start looking around and you're like, that's Bill. Oh, there's my son Braden and Yale. There's Luke and Matthew and Josh. There's Susie and Carolyn. There's Sarah. There's Holly. And you start looking around and he's saying, and we all, the ones with unveiled faces, you wanna know how we behold the glory of God just before this. He said, do I need to write you letters of my recommendation about my ministry? Because you are my letters of recommendation written by the Spirit. The Spirit of God, when we turn to the Lord, enters into us, enables us to be in union with Christ, and he says, you wanna see the glory of God? Look at each other. You wanna know how you're gonna be transformed from one degree of glory to another by Jesus through each other. So what's the catastrophic consequences of being disconnected, of fearing getting close? You remove yourself from transformation. You choose to live enslaved. You choose to live enslaved rather than in freedom because where the spirit of the Lord is, which based upon verse 18, where's the spirit of the Lord? In the church because he dwells amongst every single one of us. So what does that mean for us? If that's true, that we're looking at a mirror and he's going, you wanna know how you're gonna see the glory of God? Look at each other. Just the other day, I had one of our pastors say to me, Man, I listen to all these God stories. We share God stories a lot. And I just don't feel like that's happening in our congregation. He was very discouraged. I don't feel like that's happening in our congregation. And I don't know what to do. And I'm sitting there going, dude, you're the son of two meth addicts. Like, look in the mirror. And look and go, God's doing a lot. And then look around. Look at the midst of the transformations that are taking place. And then be vulnerable with each other. This is what the scriptures say, faithful are the wounds of a friend, that it isn't just the friends that are saying, I love you, and then do, they love you enough to get in the way of you and destruction and go, you can't go that way, right? And then the moments when you're going, am I enough? They're going, in Jesus, you're enough. They're rejoicing, we love that you're here, which is a huge exhortation to us as local churches to say, are we the places that are modeling God and modeling Jesus in such a way that when we slip up and that when we, were, we are hard, that when we are annoying, that when we are divisive, that we're going, no, you can't continue to be like that because we need to be one even as he is one. And we love you and we want you here. But what that necessitates on each one of our levels is to cross the boundary of fear into the reality of getting close, into the reality of being vulnerable, into the level of trusting God and saying, how's that gonna happen? That's gonna happen fundamentally by me knowing there's a hindrance there, which is called sin. That's the veil. Secondly, it's ignited by the love of God is that you've gotta know God is for you. And in the end, the engine of that is I need people around me forming and shaping saying they love me and loving me enough to say, not that way, this way. Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you for your grace and mercy to us in Christ. We thank you that in Jesus the veil is removed, that that which has been disintegrated, you are reintegrating. 
God, us with you, us with ourselves, us with each other, and us with the world. May we live in the shape of you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen.